American History Podcast, Season 4, Episode 17, Ramping Up the War Effort, Part 1. Welcome back to the show. Now, before we get started, let me just thank you all for your support. You listeners make the show possible, whether it's through purchasing from our sponsors or by giving us a review on iTunes and sharing the podcast with your friends and family. All of it really does help. Now, another way that you can support the show is by joining our Patreon. We have well over 20 hours of bonus content available, and if you sign up at the $10 a month level, you'll have access to two bonus shows, 1983, The Year the World Almost Ended, as well as Quagmire in the Middle East. So just head over to patreon.com forward slash American History to sign up. Okay, now the last time we spoke about the Navy and its efforts to strike back at the Japanese in the Pacific. The raid of the Marshals and the Gilberts may not have done much damage to the Japanese military, but it showed they were in for a fight, and the Americans were not going to simply roll over and give Japan what it wanted. Now today we'll look at how the Americans were able to ramp up the war effort. Before we get started, though, we've got the song of the week. And this week we have I'll Do It All Over Again by Billy Murray, courtesy of the Free Music Archive. We'll see you in just a few minutes. Okay, so today we're going to look at the effort to ramp up production, but we are also going to look at some of the myths of the war, and there are quite a few. Now, none of this will be really new to anybody, 
as it's readily available in either films about the war or books if you're paying attention. But it does go against the general narrative of World War II being the good war and the greatest generation all being happy warriors. And because of this, I think we often forget about it, but I'm going to bring it forward now, and hopefully it'll give you something to think about when it comes to World War II. Now, before we get into the negative or the myths destroying, I want to point out the truths or the positives, however you want to phrase it. First, it is true that the United States was the only nation able to field and fully equip major armies in both Western Europe and Asia. Now, because of this, as pointed out by Michael C.C. Adams in his amazing book, The Best War Ever, America and World War II, the American contribution came to be overstated in pop culture, at least here in the United States. The average American believes it was the United States that defeated both Germany and Japan. If they learned about the contribution of the Soviet Union in school, it was quickly brushed under the rug in their minds. Thanks to the Hollywood machine and a veritable cottage industry of books and documentaries which focus on the American side of the war. And it was around this effort that an entire mythos was built. So here's a couple of things. First, America outproduced everyone else and the American machines were the best ever. Now, this myth-making began as early as 1942, when General Brehan B. Somerville said there was a new champion on the battlefield, and it was Detroit. Furthermore, in the minds of many here, our soldiers outclassed all others. They were deeply committed, superbly led, superior in morale, and in their morals. There was a draft, but it was both fair and necessary and of course, the military functioned like a well-oiled machine. Just one big happy family doing what had to be done. Of course, this applies to the nation as well. The cause was, to quote Mike, historian Michael Adams, quote, not marred by racial or gender tensions. Harmony characterized the home front, end quote. Now, in our imagination, this was the best of wars. Men went off to war while women took over the production line. Everyone had a hand on the wheel, and the symbol of American can-do ideology was Rosie the Riveter. Now, as you might expect, reality was significantly more complicated. About a quarter of the 16 million troops in the United States never actually left the country. Not everyone could be dispatched to combat. Many others were forced to continue in support positions. Furthermore, just around half of soldiers who were sent overseas actually served in a combat zone. The majority of the married men were civilians, who worked at home. Even in 1944, at the height of wartime work, seven out of eight women remained housewives, contrary to the Rosie the Riveter story. 90% of young moms did not have outside jobs. To make matters even more complicated, just 16% of the women who worked did so in the military industry. Men did not want their wives working in the filthy and frequently deadly warp plants where women were exposed to sexual approaches on the night shift due to the round-the-clock manufacturing. In a Gallup study conducted in 1943, 70% of married men opposed their spouses doing military jobs, while 75% of wives approved. Blue-collar labor was despised by many middle-class women. Now, there's no denying that American business geared up to support the war effort, but it wasn't always a simple transition and it wasn't always willingly undertaken. First, on September 1st, 1939, the day Hitler invaded Poland, the U.S. Army could only equip about a third of its 227,000-strong force. 
many businesses refused to comply even after the government initiated war preparations. The auto industry was still recuperating from the Great Depression, and the last thing it wanted to do was give up its home market and earnings to build vehicles for the army. Standard Oil continued to honor its chemical contracts with IG Farben, a German business critical to the Nazi war effort, even after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. For the next nine months of the war, the Americans supported the Axis, at least to some extent. Now, having said that, American industry created an amazing amount of armaments, including about 300,000 airplanes, 77,000 ships, 372,000 large guns, 20 million small arms, 6 million tons of explosives, 103,000 armored vehicles, and nearly 2 million trucks. Now, through the Lend-Lease program, all of this supported not just the United States, but also the United Kingdom, China, and Russia. Now, in return, the United States obtained trade privileges and important British bases, which assisted the country's rise to superpower status. The reverse Lend-Lease is the component of all of this that we really never hear about. The British committed to offer equipment and services to the United States, including access to military interventions, or inventions, I should say, sorry. Lend-Lease helped the Soviets, but not quite as much as it helped the British. Only 4% of Soviet military equipment was American, while American, uh, America donated 25% of British weaponry. Now, despite the fact that Germany captured or destroyed numerous Russian enterprises, the Soviets maintained a huge domestic manufacturing effort. The Soviets produced 40,000 airplanes, 30,000 armored vehicles per year during the conflict, as well as 150,000 heavy guns and half a million machine guns. While Soviet soldiers fought with inferior or obsolete equipment at the beginning, the quality of Russian weapons increased dramatically throughout the conflict, surprising both friends and foes. The T-34 tank, for example, was a match for the German Tiger tank. Okay, so this isn't to suggest that the Americans didn't make high-quality material. They did. The M1 shoulder, fire, uh, shoulder rifle was a solid performer. The proximity fuse, invented in 1943, employed a small antenna to detonate shells near to the target, considerably enhancing anti-aircraft fire effectiveness. However, some of the equipment was not up to par. The anti-tank bazooka was inferior to the Panzerfaust that the Germans produced, and it's because the American version required two soldiers to operate, and it left the holder with excruciating powder burns on his face. American automatic weapons from World War I were slower and clumsier than their German counterparts, and were being used at least at the beginning. For example, the German Spandau was simple to maintain and shot 1,200 rounds per minute, compared to 500 for the Browning automatic rifle. In the harsh winter of 44-45, um, certain American anti-tank mines were unstable in sub-freezing temperatures, resulting in truckloads of them bursting. Now let's look at the American tanks again. They were weaker than the tanks the Germans produced, even the famous Sherman. The armor on that tank was thinner and the gun weaker than the German 88. Tank crews referred to the models which featured a gasoline engine versus diesel as the Ronson, a reference to the popular cigarette lighter. The reason was not necessarily due to a mistake on the part of the engineers. The mindset of the U.S. Army was formed in the Indian Wars of the late 19th century. This is when speed was emphasized, at the expense of firepower. Thus, the United States favored faster, lighter equipment. The conventional wisdom said it took five Sherman tanks 
to kill one German Panther tank. This meant the Allies in the West needed to support their tanks, as they were not strong enough to break through enemy lines. The solution was to rely on heavy artillery and intensive airstrikes. The result was the fight in Western Europe consisted of the use of brute force, often to the detriment of civilians. French historians have estimated that, to liberate Normandy, the Americans, British, and Canadians killed about 70,000 civilians. 3,000 civilians were killed in the Normandy invasion itself, a number that is close to the number of soldiers who died. Okay, so now that we've destroyed a bit of the myth, and I've probably lost about half of you in the process, let's look at the ramping up of production here in the United States. In May 1940, things were looking bleak. The British army was on the verge of destruction in France. Churchill was preparing England for a German invasion. Should such an event be pulled off successfully, the Nazi war machine would have access to the Royal Navy and the ability to patrol the Atlantic off the American coast. President Franklin Roosevelt asked Congress to appropriate $700 million for the army. He called for 50,000 naval and military planes and wanted to produce 50,000 of them every year. To say Americans were stunned would be an understatement. The Secretary of the Treasury, Henry Morgenthau, held a meeting with executives from Lockheed Martin, um, Douglas uh, Aircraft Manufacturers. None of them were exactly friends of the administration, having been kicked by them during the previous decade or so. But meet with the administration, they did. They were dumbfounded by the request for 50,000 planes. What kind of planes and when were they needed by? Morgenthau could not answer these questions. So they left the meeting even more perplexed than they had been before. FDR then met with Bernard Baruch, a longtime Democratic Party donor, a wealthy financier, and the man who ran the war industry effort for President Wilson in World War I. Baruch said thanks, but no thanks. However, he did have someone he could recommend, and the man he recommended was Bill Knudsen. Now you're probably wondering who the heck Bill Knudsen was. He was an auto executive, having worked for Ford from 1911 through 1921, and then he was the head of Chevrolet from 1924 to 1937. He was there at the time that Ford perfected the Model T and the assembly line. While Ford had perfected the assembly line to make a particular product, it was Knudsen who took it to the next level by showing him how you could use it to make any product. For uh, First, you determined what machinery should be used. Next, you decide where every machine tool is going to be placed. Be sure the flow of materials coincides with the sequence of operations. Thus, there would be no wasted steps. Knudsen had a knack for taking a complex process and simplifying it. Now, one of the revolutions Knudsen set, uh, led at Chevrolet was flexible mass production. This was a process that allowed for constant motivation and change. This was his second innovation in the auto industry, with his first being the continuous assembly line. Flexible production meant they needed to be able to quickly retool the assembly line. It also meant the machines being used had to be standard and not single-purpose machines. All of this would help the American war machine ramp up production just a decade and a half later. Just a little bit of trivia you might like. Knudsen and his process meant auto manufacturers would introduce a new model every year, and it would come out in the fall, a practice that you still see today. Now, another industrialist I think we should keep in mind was a man named Henry J. Kaiser. His parents were ethnic Germans who migrated to the United States before he was born. His father made shoes, and Henry himself went on to create a pavement company 
by the time he was in his early 30s. This gave him the experience he needed with heavy construction machinery, a skill which came in handy during the Second World War. Eventually, his firm played a major role in constructing dams throughout the western United States, including the Hoover Dam on the Colorado River, as well as Grand Coulee Dam on the Columbia. It was his interest in boat racing that led Kaiser to get into shipbuilding. He created shipyards in both Seattle and Tacoma and started using mass production techniques, which came in handy during the coming uh, war. Now, one of the ways they did it was to weld instead of using rivets. Now, in May 1940, FDR called Nudson and asked him to come to Washington to lead the production effort. He agreed, but he said he had to talk to the board at GM first. His family was stunned. Nudson was a lifelong Republican. His daughter, attending the University of Michigan at the time, asked, quote, Why are you leaving to work for this man now? End quote. After all, the United States was not in the war yet. His answer was, quote, This country has been good to me, and I want to pay it back. End quote. Needless to say, his boss at GM was not happy with the decision either, noting, They'll make a monkey out of you down there. But Nudson was determined to go, and go he did. His 30-year career in the auto industry ended that day as he was taken off General Motors' payroll. Now, upon his arrival in the capital, he was met by Harry Hopkins, FDR's most trusted confidant and one of the original architects of the New Deal. Hopkins noted the government could not pay him a wage, and he said he'd need to take a leave of absence from GM. Nudson said the pay was not an issue, and his job at GM was taken care of. Thus, Nudson was now a member of what Roosevelt termed the Council of National Defense Advisory Commission. He was joined by Edward Stettinus, Jr., sorry, President of U.S. Steel, Chester Davis of the Federal Reserve Board, Leon Henderson from the Securities and Exchange Commission, Sidney Hillman, President of Amalgamated Clothing Workers, and Harriet Elliott, Dean of Women from the University of North Carolina, who came on board as an advisor on consumer problems. Nudson looked around the room and asked, who's the boss? FDR laughed along with everyone else and said, I guess I am. Okay, so this is where we're going to end this one. I think it's the perfect stopping point. Um, I hope you continue listening as next episode we, were gonna, we are going to continue to delve deeper into how exactly the United States ramped up its war machine. And we're going to look at Henry Kaiser in a little more depth. Until next time, I'm Sean, and you've been listening to Season 4 of the American History Podcast. Shut it off, Rob. Oh, 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 oh